Chapter Twelve of Twelve Good Musicians from John Bull to Henry Purcell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twelve Good Musicians from John Bull to Henry Purcell by Frederick Bridge. Chapter Twelve Henry Purcell. In Henry Purcell I reached the last and the greatest of my twelve good musicians, and to attempt to consider and discuss completely his life and work in the short space of a university lecture would be an absurd effort. But, as I have before pointed out, my object has been to endeavor to interest the musical student, amateur and professional, in certain prominent masters of music and in the remarkable progress made in our own country by their aid in the seventeenth century i can do little more than arouse interest and i cannot pretend to write a complete history but i trust the lectures will have helped to fill up the blank which sir hubert perry declared existed in many minds as regards the music of this period in the consideration of the various musicians of whom i have already treated i have avoided biographical detail as a rule information in these matters may be gleaned from the well-known books of reference but in the case of purcell i am obliged to enlarge a little on his life in the hope that i may be able to contribute a few interesting facts with regard to his family that are not generally known let me begin then with purcell's father it is an extraordinary thing that we know nothing whatever of him until we find his name among distinguished musicians such as captain cook Locke and Laws, as one of the performers in the Siege of Rhodes, in 1656. In the preface to this publication, it is claimed that the music was composed, and both the vocal and instrumental is exercised by the most transcendent of England in that art. What did the elder Purcell do before he attained such a position? We know absolutely nothing as regards to his origin, his training, or his career up to this i've made diligent search in the archives of westminster to see if there were anything to be learned there and, and have gleaned a few small facts the name of roger purcell occurs in a bill for bringing lumber to the college in august sixteen twenty eight the items of the bill include carriage by land one shilling sixpence for watching sixpence for helping to land the timber sixpence this would seem to apply to a load of lumber brought from a distance for the use of carpenters of the college roger purcell would have come up with the lumber or he may have been one of the carpenters he was paid three shillings for two days work the name appears again in sixteen fifty nine when we find in a page of accounts expended by george blackbourne and joseph hobbs for the travelling charges about the college affairs at oxford in the country of huntington the following note in the bonds taken by mr throgmorton and roger purcell there is included four pounds rewards travelling charges then roger purcell is spoken of as the bailiff of mr giles it is rather curious that the name of roger purcell should occur at such a wide interval sixteen twenty eight and again in sixteen fifty nine one wonders if Roger's connection with the Abbey and its property was the beginning of the musical members of the family coming to Westminster. 
there was a shropshire purcell family of some standing in the herald's visitation of shropshire in sixteen twenty three it was given as of onslow and shrewsbury and there were many distinguished purcells in ireland we know and hear nothing more of the elder purcell after the production of the siege of rhodes in sixteen fifty six until his name appears in a book in the library at westminster this book records the omission of one or two petty canons in sixteen sixty in the payment of them of five shillings for the entry mr henry purcell's name is also entered with the note instead of five shillings this book here then we have the great musician's father installed in the abbey as master of the choristers not organist also and copyist he was also a gentleman of the royal chapel and a singing man of westminster later on we find him a member of the royal band sixteen sixty three all these important appointments testify to his leading musical position we have a glimpse of him in the pepys diary under date february twenty first sixteen sixty after dinner i went back to westminster hall here i met with mr locke and purcell master of music and with them to the coffee-house into a room next to the water by ourselves here we had variety of brave italian and spanish songs and a canon for eight voices which mr locke had lately made on these words domine salvum fac regium another small fact of interest in connection with the elder purcell is furnished me by my brother of chester he finds in the chirk castle accounts by the steward of sir thomas middleton an allusion to mr purcell who is no doubt our elder purcell dr bridge writes as follows in sixteen sixty one the family had gone up to london and we find the steward there and recording december twenty fourth paid for a quart of pearl with mr purcell two shillings as a rule only the names of important personages are put in the accounts as the steward did not live in london it looks as if mr purcell was a former acquaintance from some one near chirk this place is on the borders of three counties of which shropshire is one and as the purcells probably came from salop their birthplace or place of residence may have been at the chirk end of the county possibly mr purcell was an old friend of the stewarts there is no doubt the elder purcell lived in the place called the almonry where the singing men had houses these stood where the well-known westminster palace hotel now stands and here his distinguished son was born it is generally stated that he was born in sixteen fifty eight it seems however just as likely or even more likely the date should be sixteen fifty nine unfortunately it has been impossible to find the record of his baptism the register at st margaret's church westminster for this period which was then very carefully kept does not show henry purcell's name the approximate date is fixed fairly well for us by the fact that in june sixteen eighty three purcell published some sonatas to which his portrait was prefixed on this portrait he is said to be a tot soire twenty four i e in the twenty fourth year of his age again on his monument in the abbey we find anno etatus suae thirty seven i e in the thirty-seventh year of his age 
therefore if he was in his thirty-seventh year on november twenty first sixteen ninety five the date of his death he must have been born between november twenty first sixteen fifty eight and november twentieth sixteen fifty nine not only is his baptism during these years not recorded at st margaret's but the rate books of st margaret's for sixteen fifty eight and sixteen fifty nine do not contain the name of purcell as they certainly would have had his father had a house in the parish a friend has made most careful inquiries for me on this point i expect the almonry was in the precincts of westminster abbey and so would not be in the parish and it is quite reasonable to suppose the child born in the almonry was christened in the abbey but i have never yet found any record of this purcell's own son edward was christened in the abbey in 1689. It is interesting to know that Henry Laws lived also in the almonry and so must have known the little boy Purcell, but as Laws died in 1662, the child could not have given any proof of his future genius. The elder Purcell died in 1664, and the young boy was placed in the chapel royal choir at the early age of six years thomas purcell brother of the elder purcell was a distinguished musician also and a member of the chapel royal besides holding other important posts he looked after his clever little nephew and was a real father to him and as in the case of henry purcell senior we know nothing of the previous history of thomas purcell until we find him in his high position who trained him and his brother henry we know not henry purcell was thus one of the remarkable set of boys to which i have often alluded in these lectures among his fellow choristers being pelham humphrey and blow like the other boys he began to compose and the first reliable composition we have was the address of the children of the chapel royal to the king and their master captain cook on his majesty's birthday a d sixteen seventy composed by master purcell one of the children of the said chapel purcell no doubt owed much to captain cook but it is also certain that the influence of pelham humphrey with the experience he gained by his studies with lully must have made a deep impression as we know humphrey died at the early age of twenty-seven and purcell continued his studies with blow whose monument in the abbey records he was master to the famous henry purcell the first appointment Purcell held was that of copyist to Westminster Abbey, 1676, a post which his father held, held before him. We know little for certain as to his compositions for the church in his early days. As a matter of fact, he seems to have been drawn, like Henry Laws, more to the secular side, writing for the theater. It has been suggested that he was introduced to this kind of work by Locke, who we know was a prominent composer for the stage we must also remember that humphrey would very likely have helped to influence the mind of the young purcell in that direction on locke's death in sixteen seventy seven purcell wrote an ode on the death of his worthy friend matthew locke in sixteen eighty dr blow resigned his position as organist of westminster abbey and purcell seceded him there is no record of blow resigning or the cause of it in the chapter books one simply finds in the treasurer's accounts that Purcell drew the salary as organist instead of Blow. 
probably his appointment to westminster turned his mind more towards church than stage the composition of the opera dito and aeneas is i think proved by mr barclay squire's clever article on purcell's dramatic music not to be a composition of his early years it is not possible for me to go minutely into the subject of purcell's many compositions but i will for a few moments call attention to what i consider almost his masterpiece i allude to the splendid and original set of sonatas which he issued in sixteen eighty three this was purcell's first publication and it was issued from st anne's lane beyond westminster abbey where the composer resided having been married in sixteen eighty one should be added that he was made organist of the chapel royal in sixteen eighty two holding that post at the same time as the abbey these sonatas are a very interesting study in purcell's career like many of the composers mentioned in these lectures purcell wrote fancies but the sonatas are a very different thing written for two violins cello and basso continuo and continuing of three or four movements of differing character they are a wonderful advance of anything previously done in this direction either in england or abroad corelli issued his sonatas in the same year that purcell's appeared but Corelli's, although beautiful, have not the depth or originality of Purcell's, which are admirably written for the strings and abound in clever devices, but are in no way dull or suggestive of vocal writing. The three strings are often complete without the continual, but occasionally there is an extra part for this. My own experience of them and performance is that the least possible accompaniment is best and it should be remembered that the continuo is not written for a modern pianoforte with its powerful tone but for the harpsichord or organ purcell in his preface says for its author he has faithfully endeavoured a just imitation of the most favourite italian masters he goes on to explain the meaning of certain italian terms of art perhaps unusual such as adagio grave presto largo etc and concludes with a wish that his book may fall into no other hands but those who carry musical souls about them for he is willing to flatter himself into a belief that with such his labours will seem neither unpleasant nor unprofitable the question of the models that purcell had in writing these fine sonatas and what famous italian masters he imitated has been often debated for myself i cannot but believe that purcell owed much to a remarkable neapolitan violinist nicola matthias this italian violinist and composer came to london about sixteen seventy two and resided there till after purcell's death the death of matthias's birth is not known but the accounts of his playing given from personal observation by such authorities as john evelyn in his contemporary diary and roger north in his memoirs of music show that he came here as a mature artist purcell was then fifteen years old and during the eleven years which elapsed till the publication of the sixteen eighty three purcell sonatas matthias was much the most prominent foreign musician and the only italian musician of any rank resident in london the propagation of musical styles from one country to another was carried out in those days very little by the dissemination of copies 
whether a manuscript were printed and much more by the activities of persons who went here and there giving performances and concerts and roger north says specifically but as yet we have given no account of the decadence of the french music and the italian coming in its room this happened by degrees and the overture was by accident for the coming over of signor nicolai matteus gave the first start he was an excellent musician etc 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 purcell the organist of westminster abbey must of course have known matteus as he directed the concerts of chief justice francis north roger north's brother in queen street and it is evident from the writings of roger that the norths were supporters of matteus in the bodleian library i have found chief justice north's name inscribed as the owner of one of the volumes of matteus's airs for the violin then as to the explanation of italian terms in purcell's preface it is a little singular that much the same sort of information is found prefixed to matthias's second volume of violin pieces again i have discovered in manuscript parts in the bodleian library and had performed at a lecture at the royal institution a sonata in a by matthias in the exact sonata form used by purcell in sixteen eighty three and though the date of this manuscript composition cannot be traced it is at least as likely to have been composed before sixteen eighty three as after however i am not asserting that a composer like purcell copied matthias's works i am only saying that it was matthias who made the italian chamber music prevalent in london and that but for him purcell would possibly never have thought or written in that style and i cannot better conclude than by quoting from one of north's voluminous manuscripts essay on musical air british museum added manuscript thirty two five thirty six folio seventy eight the poor man matthias as a grateful legacy to the english nation left with them a general savour for the italian manner of harmony and after him the french was wholly laid aside and nothing in town had a relish without a spice of italy and the masters here began to imitate them witness mr h purcell in his noble set of sonatas purcell composed another set of sonatas which was published after his death one of them generally called the golden sonata is perhaps the best known of any in either of the issues but it is inferior to others particularly number four of the first set and altogether i do not think the second is at all on a level with the first i may add that i have in my library the parts of the original publication of the first set the continuum contains an immense number of additional figures and there are a few corrections in the other parts which i have never found in any other copy it would appear almost as if purcell himself made the corrections and indeed sir hubert perry was of opinion this was so i hope i may be able shortly to print these sonatas and separate parts so they may be accessible to lovers of purcell i cannot linger now over these interesting sonatas but must glance at purcell's further activities he wrote an ode for st cecilia's day in this year sixteen eighty three and many anthems about this time in sixteen eighty six he took part in the competition of organ builders at the temple church 
already spoken of in my lecture on dr blow in sixteen eighty five he produced music for the coronation of james the second himself singing in the choir with blow child and others who directed the music i e play the organ as was customary we are not told i possess a very rare engraving of this great ceremony and one of the choirs seems certainly to hold a baton in his hand but it was not usual to have a conductor the second coronation in which purcell took part had a rather serious turn it was that of william and mary and purcell admitted persons to the organ loft to see the ceremony for which they evidently paid pretty well purcell thought it was a perquisite i do not suppose he was paid for his extra work on the occasion but the dean and chapter claimed the money and passed the following chapter order april eighteenth sixteen eighty nine it is ordered that mr purcell organist to the dean and chapter of westminster do pay to the hand of mr john needham receiver of the college all such monies as were received for him for places in the organ loft at the coronation of king william and queen mary by or before saturday next being the twentieth day of this instant april and in default thereof his place is ordered to be null and void and it is further ordered that his stipend or salary due at our lady day past be detained in the hands of the treasurer until further order entry in chapter book poor purcell paid up as an entry in the treasurer's book states received a mr purcell his poundage and charges being deducted seventy eight pounds four shillings six pence the visitors to the organ loft could not have been many as it was but small so they paid pretty well for their seats and purcell seems to have had some sort of commission in the way of poundage and other charges the opera of dito and aeneas has often been quoted as a marvellous effort of purcell's early days being a complete opera without spoken dialogue it is a most interesting example of purcell's advanced views and had he written it in sixteen seventy five when only seventeen years of age it would indeed have been a marvel but i feel sure mr barclay squire is right in putting it much later in sixteen eighty nine although a splendid piece of work it is that of a man of experience and not of a youth one of the composer's best operas is diocletian an adaptation from beaumont and fletcher by betterton it is scored for strings flutes hautboys bassoons and trumpets it is very interesting music and there is a mask included in it containing some of the host of purcell's operatic work purcell corrected the copies of the first issue by his own hand i possess one of these scarce books he tells us a little of his troubles with a printer in an advertisement at the end of the book in order to the speedier publication of the book i employed two several printers but one of them falling into some trouble and the volume swelling to a bulk beyond my expectations have been the occasion of this delay the music to diocletian and to Amphitrahan, a play by dryden added greatly to purcell's fame and dryden who at once thought grabu the french master of the king's music to be far superior to any english composer now mentions purcell as one in whose person we have at length found an 
Englishmen equal with the best abroad. At least my opinion of him has been such since his happy and judicious performances in the last opera. Dryden's. Dryden wrote another opera in 1691, King Arthur, which Purcell set to music. This is, I think, the best, excepting Dido and Aeneas, of Purcell's dramatic works, containing as it does the celebrated air, Come If You Dare, in the Frost Scene. I cannot dwell longer on Purcell's dramatic music, but will turn for a moment to the music for St. Cecilia's Day in 1692. This was performed as usual in Stationer's Hall. The hall still stands at the bottom of Paternoster Row, and the gentleman's magazine of the time mentions the performance and tells us the interesting fact that the second stanza was sung with incredible graces by Mr. Purcell himself so it seems that purcell had an alto voice but it is pleasant to go into the very hall with the musicians company of the present day and think of the old building echoing years ago to the strains of purcell's voice and now i must turn to one of the finest of purcell's contribution to the services of the church in sixteen ninety four he wrote an elaborate te deum and jubilate with orchestral accompaniment this is the first of its kind by an English composer. It was written for the festival of St. Cecilia's Day, 1694, but was not published until after the composer's death. The Te Deum was performed in St. Paul's at the annual festival service of the Sons of the Clergy until 1713, when Handel's Te Deum, composed for the Peace of Utrecht, took its place. From that time for some years the two rival te deums were performed alternately. There are some points of resemblance. Handel must have heard Purcell's setting, but the version of it, which until lately was known, and sometimes performed, was a sad corruption of the original. Voice with the intention, no doubt, of helping Purcell's te deum to compete with Handel's, broke it up into various movements made some alterations in the harmony and added many dull symphonies the original purcell score consisted of three hundred twenty-five bars and boyce added one hundred and forty-nine more the result was disastrous and practically killed the purcell setting a performance of it was given in eighteen twenty nine again at the festival of the sons of the clergy a very interesting letter from mr fetus the great french writer is preserved in a musical paper of june eighteen twenty nine which i will quote i must confess that my curiosity was considerable to hear the music of purcell whom the english proudly cite as being worthy of being placed in the same rank with the greatest composers of germany and italy i was in a perfectly admiring disposition of mind when the te deum of this giant began but what was my disappointment upon hearing instead of the masterpiece which they had promised me a long succession of insignificant phrases ill-connected modulations and incorrect albeit pretending harmonies at first i imagined myself deceived and thought i ought to doubt my judgment on a style of music to which i was unaccustomed but mr felix mendelssohn a young and highly distinguished german composer who stood beside me received precisely the same impressions. Such indeed was the inconvenience felt by him that he would not prolong it, but escape 
leaving me to encounter Purcell alone during the performance of the Jubilate, which appeared to me no way superior. It was a great anxiety to me to know what to do about introducing this te deum in, in the music of the Abbey Purcell celebration. I consulted Sir Hubert Perry, who said it was long-winded and dull, and so I had always found it, and the result was I gave up the idea. But most providentially, the manuscript score of this work was brought to me one day in the cloisters of the Abbey. The announcement of the coming celebration had called the owner's attention to it. He sold it to me, and when I looked it over, I found out what was the real reason of its failure. It was Boyce's edition and not Purcell's music. A new edition was prepared, and the Te Deum again restored to life. In another direction, Purcell showed his remarkable versiality. He corrected and amended Playford's introduction to the skill of music a book of great interest. Purcell's observation on canon are particularly good and valuable. In 1695, the funeral of Queen Mary took place in the Abbey, Purcell contributing an anthem and other music. The solemn march for flat, mournful trumpets has lately been recovered and published. This is a beautiful specimen of Purcell's art, and it is said was played at his own funeral. Purcell died on November 21, 1695, and Dr. Cummings, in his Life of Purcell, draws a moving picture of the death of the composer in a house on the west side of Dean's Yard, but Purcell never lived in Dean's Yard. Rate books are not romantic, but generally trustworthy. The rate books of Westminster show that in 1682, Purcell paid rates for a house in Great St. Anne's Lane in 1686 for a house in Bowling Alley East, and in 1693, 1694, and 1695, the year of his death, for a house in Marsham Street. All these houses are now demolished, but the ones in Bowling Alley existed until lately, and I possess cupboards made from the mantelpieces and balusters of the staircase of Purcell's house. Further proof that he rented houses lies in the fact that he was allowed eight pounds a year in lieu of a house, and the same payment continued up to the time of my predecessor, who had no house for the early years of his organistship. The death of this great man was a grievous loss to English music. Although he had worthy pupils in Dr. Croft and others, yet he had no real successor and the arrival of handel and the musical domination which he exercised did much to cause purcell's name to sink somewhat into oblivion but it was only for a time and now there is no english musician whose name and fame is more assured a purcell society is gradually publishing all his works and making them more accessible his operas of dito and aeneas and the fairy queen have been performed with great success and his church music is still constantly on the list of our cathedrals. It has not been possible for me to notice all his work as I would wish to have done, but we must all feel that not only was he the last of my twelve good musicians, but by far the greatest. A translation of the lines upon his gravestone in Westminster Abbey may fitly close this chapter, Applaud so great a guest, celestial powers, who now resides with you but once was ours. 
yet let invidious earth no more reclaim her short-lived favourite and her chiefest fame complaining that so prematurely died good-natured pleasure and devotion's pride died no he lives while yonder organs sound and sacred echoes to the choir rebound note since the preceding pages were written i have been in correspondence with dr w h grattan flood of inniscurthy with reference to the irish purcells mentioned on page one twenty dr grattan flood claims to have proved henry purcell to be descended from a distinguished irish family before quoting from his kind communication i may say it seems to me very probable the purcells were of good family both the elder henry and his brother thomas were musicians of note when we first hear of them and at the restoration were members of the king's band henry being also master of the choristers of westminster abbey edward purcell an elder brother of the composer was a distinguished officer who took part in the siege of gibraltar and ended his days in honourable retirement at the seat of the earl of abington at witham near oxford in the chancel of which church he is interred another small point is the fact that purcell's first published work the sonatas was issued with a portrait of the composer and with a coat of arms all this looks as if roger purcell the bailiff of mr giles see page one twenty is not so likely to have been an ancestor of the musician as one of the irish purcells i am not able to give all the matter kindly sent to me which i hope dr grattan flood will make public but append his observations on the most important points henry purcell the composer was the younger son of henry purcell the elder and was adopted at the age of six by his uncle thomas the puzzle then is who was the father of henry purcell the elder and of thomas purcell in order to answer this i have made a systematic search in the fiance of elizabeth and james i in the calendars of state papers ireland sixteen twenty three through sixteen seventy in the inquisitions funeral entries in the office of arms etc and have succeeded in tracing the father and grandfather of henry purcell the elder i had unusual opportunities of making this investigation inasmuch as i assisted captain r p mahaffey b l in the editing of the irish state papers of charles i and charles the second henry purcell the elder was the son of thomas purcell of gortany in ballycross county tipperary the son of thomas fitzpiers purcell cousin of the baron of lomo and cousin of the purcells of croag county limerick both henry and thomas purcell were brought when quite young to england by their aunt and placed in the chapel royal their aunt was a blood relation of the marquis of ormond who was on intimate terms with king charles i mrs james purcell their aunt took for her second husband colonel john fitzpatrick who was also a personal friend of charles i and of charles the second this lady was elizabeth butler fourth daughter of thomas viscount thurles her marriage jointure is dated eleven february sixteen thirty nine she returned from london in sixteen forty three at the restoration through the influence of the marquis of mormond 
who was created duke of ormond on march thirtieth sixteen sixty one both henry purcell the elder and his brother thomas were given posts as gentlemen in the chapel royal and were in the immediate entourage of the court and not unregarded by the observant peeps henry married circa sixteen fifty one and his eldest son edward called after an uncle of the same name was born in sixteen fifty three w h groton flood it will be seen dr groton flood gives interesting particulars of the irish family on one point the suggestion that the elder purcell and his brother thomas were placed in the chapel royal i wish he could give some real proof for it would i think explain all the ensuing musical success of purcell's father his uncle thomas and himself but i can only hope that dr groton flood's further researches may end in completely clearing up the mystery of the ancestry of henry purcell j f b end of chapter twelve henry purcell end of twelve good musicians from john bull to henry purcell by frederick bridge